We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp. Oh, my now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. My name is Alan Williams. My partner, as always, the illustrious James DiVirgilio. Man, that was a tough game. But we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to break down the defense, the offense, the quarterback play. We're going to look at some interesting coaching decisions. And we're also going to look at this week's opponent, Texas A&M. All right, as we get into the game this week, one thing I love about college football is that it's weird. It gets crazy. Nutty stuff, nutty stuff happens, like Michigan losing to Michigan State or Iowa State being a huge underdog and going into Oklahoma and winning. But, James, let me ask you, was this Saturday one of those really weird, crazy, you know, it's just fo- college football kind of occurrences, or is this indicative of who we are as a team? This is indicative of who we are as a team. We said as much last week on the pod. These are two coaches, Ed Orgeron, who I think is very poor as a coach, and Jim McElwain, who we think just tends to be the best of the worst going at it with two talented teams. And to me, that's what it looked like. And we're going to diagnose and break down why that is. But 
sadly, it's not Michigan losing in a downpour of rain minus their starting quarterback playing a guy in O'Corn at home to Michigan State team that knows them well. Uh, Oklahoma is hard to explain. I know that Iowa State's got your boy there as coach, and you 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 prepped that in the past week, Alan. So well done uh, being high on Iowa State, but it's not those situations, and uh, it, it's. It's more troubling, I think, because it just continues to be systemic, in my opinion. This is who we are. We are an average football team. We do average things, except we have above-average players, which to me means underachieving. This game was really frustrating for me, especially as I went back and watched a lot of it again and looked at some of the turning points of the game. And obviously, people will point to the missed extra point, although in my opinion that you know, certainly while looming large at at the end of the game wasn't the biggest story. At the end of the third quarter, it looked like we had the game wrapped up and we went silent on offense in the fourth quarter. And in the first half, there were so many opportunities to move the ball, to score points, and we didn't take advantage of them. Um, really frustrating um, to watch it again on film. How What was it like in the stadium live? I, the first comment on the stadium, and, and thankfully there's been a lot written on about watching Gator games live now this weekend. It's the first I've seen it. It's just a general malaise. We've said it each week on the program, Alan, you're in Moscow. You asked me what it's like here in Gainesville. And the pregame tailgating is as down as I've seen it. It's just sort of uh, it's flat. There's more energy on a Wednesday on campus than there is on a Saturday. The fans are, are flat, and I don't blame any of them. I, I feel the same way. I'm not excited about the games. I'm not excited about the rivalry. Uh, we've just sort of died as a fan base. And, you know, the Will Greer six game brought us back alive. And outside of that, we're sort of back in our in our sleeping slumber state. And so I think to be in the stadium, was it wasn't, wasn't loud. It was empty. Uh, tons of empty seats in the student section. Not a lot of excitement. I know McElwain keeps referencing how great the environment is. Really a, a very poor, I feel like, swamp environment. And, and not, again, not a critique here on the fans or the students. Uh, this is a bad team to watch. This is an indication of, of the team. And, and being there in person, it felt just like how we felt pregame. It felt bad. It felt sloppy. It felt poor. It felt unlike what a team of this caliber should be like. And the LSU fans felt the same way. I had conversations with several of them. One stayed at my house, and it's identical feelings, I think, for LSU fans and Florida fans right now. And it's it's just a, it's a frustrating time to be a football fan of either one of those teams. It's a frustrating time for me to be a Florida fan right now. And going to the games is not helping the experience. If anything, Alan, I think you being able to watch it on television in Moscow might be the better way to go. You save yourself the heat and the frustration of being there in person. Let's jump in and talk about why what happened happened. And let's start on the defensive side of the ball. LSU is a really quirky offense, as we talked about with all the window dressing. What we mean by that, all the shifts and motions and all the pre-snap stuff that was happening. And they scored in some unpredictable ways. Tell me, James, how is LSU scoring when they seem so limited on offense? Matt Canada called a brilliant game and and it was a high school maybe even middle school pop warner level game plan but it's exactly what lsu needed they wound up playing three true freshmen for a lot of the game on the offensive line uh, interesting report had come out the week before that ed orgeron had restricted matt canada from running his pre-snap window dressing all the motions in the game against troy until halftime in which case 
LSU then moved the ball on Troy pretty much at will uh, towards the end of that game when they started incorporating it. And look, Matt Canada gets accused of being finesse, but the reality is those motions work against inferior teams. And, and Matt Canada is not a guy, by the way, who wants to run that kind of offense. I think he's a guy who recognizes LSU is extremely limited with what they're putting out there, uh, especially starting 3-2 freshmen. So really smart game plan by LSU. Uh, there was a lot of frustration from Florida fans about how they were able to move the ball. But we tried to highlight coming into this show that this is really tricky stuff. We have a very inexperienced defense, and I'm not sure why so many Gator fans expected that you would just stop a jet sweep. It's not that easy to stop the jet sweep based upon all of the, the motions they were running. And one important thing to note on film, LSU had not put nearly any of the stuff our football team saw in the first half on film. There was not a single precursor for it. So I'm not sure why, as a football fan, you would expect an inexperienced linebacker or safety to just be in the right spot against that. It's not realistic. Uh, hats off to LSU for calling good plays. Secondly, LSU scored 17 points in this game, Allen, and all of them, all of them were aided by penalties and or dropped interceptions. The first touchdown on third and eight. Duke Dawson gets a holding call on a receiver that wasn't going to be open anyway on a ball that was poorly thrown. LSU gets a first down, scores on a jet sweep later. The second field goal LSU kicks right before halftime is Duke Dawson dropping an interception, hits him right in the chest. So those points could have been erased. And lastly, the Duke Dawson simul catch uh, where he's there is a blown coverage by Chauncey Garden. We're in a cover two. Chauncey is the back safety. They send only two guys on this route deep. No one else runs a route, which means your safeties are always supposed to be deeper than the deepest man, and Chauncey's nowhere to be found. So hats off to Duke for even being there on the simul catch, but that play should never happen. That play should never happen. Uh, and so LSU was very fortunate to score their 17 points, and the jet sweeps worked almost exclusively against freshmen, whether it was Sean Davis or the first touchdown against Donovan Steiner, number 13, Donovan Steiner, who hasn't played, I mean, more than a handful of snaps is in a linebacker as a freshman. They run the jet sweep on him. Uh, there's reasons why these things happened. So I think to me, Alan, the bigger question was, how did we fix this? And we did a tremendous job fixing it. The defense did an excellent job in the second half. LSU scored no points. We held them to 62 yards for most of the rest of the game. And we fixed it by making some very simple adjustments. We had our defensive ends pop into space. We brought a safety down in the box frequently. And uh, essentially those guys, the same guys that were getting fooled early on, stopped getting fooled, which to me shows proper coaching and good progress. So I thought on the defense, it was sort of a tale of two halves or even a tale of two games, much like the Vanderbilt game was, which is to be expected of a young team. We're going to have more to say about Randy Shannon and his role. I got a lot of questions on that this weekend. Is Randy Shannon the worst defensive coordinator we've had? Is this the worst defense we've had in 30 years? We're going to talk more about that. But on film, I think it's important for you to know the jet sweeps were good. They were creative. We highlighted Matt Canada. Alan, I know Matt Canada is one of your favorites uh, as a guy that could do these sort of things. And he did a very good job of it. When they were in a normal set against us, we essentially shut them down. They had very little success running any regular offense against us, which I think continues to show the growth of our defense as we move along. Uh, so that's how I saw it on the defense. Alan, I know you don't always get to watch all of the film, but did it look that way to you watching live? Because I know to me, it's hard to make sense of what's happening when you're in the stadium. You go back and you watch the film and it changes your perception. 
Are some of the things we just talked about things that you sort of noticed while watching the game, or were you feeling like, oh my gosh, these jet sweeps are just killing us? What's wrong with us? Well, the jet sweeps are obviously the thing that stood out the most, and I was hopeful that we would fix it because it's not something that's, you know, revolutionary. But if you're not expecting it, it can catch you off guard. And they were running it for some interesting formations and you know all the motion and everything like that. But I totally agree that m- almost all of their points came when we gave them ground through penalties or missed turnovers. I mean, the number of times that that interception is going to be simultaneously caught is crazy. I mean, that, that that almost never happens. And I think you can make a case that Duke was down before the ball, the guy actually, you know, maybe took control of the ball if he ever did at all. And so I thought the defense actually played fairly well. Now there's a few third downs where they didn't get off the field. They allowed, LSU to choose some clock, but LSU was using almost all of the play clock every time. So I thought the defense acquitted themselves very nicely. And I mean, their yardage totals in the second half was almost nothing. Um, this defense gave the offense a chance to win and it didn't get done. 17 points is not unreasonable, especially with our youth and inexperience. And so, uh, yeah, frustrating to see when they did score because it felt like we, should be stopping and maybe that's what fans were looking at that it's like how are we letting those them score on this garbage um but yes i i was encouraged that we made the adjustments especially at halftime to put a stop to some of the stuff that they were attempting to do let's flip over to the offense now the offense found some success in the third quarter we really moved the ball well but found ourselves struggling in the first half and in the fourth quarter what do you think the result of that was unfortunately it's the same thing that I keep beating the drum on. And I just want to like kind of press play from a previous week and here insert James's comments, but we tipped our place. LSU knows what we're going to do before we're going to do it a fair amount of the time. Uh, There's some simple examples you can look for on yourself, but at first and 10 in the first quarter, in the middle of the first quarter, uh, we are coming out in a three receiver set and LSU mysteriously has six guys in the box. And I've gotten some questions on this. So what does six guys in the box mean? Well, you count the defensive linemen, you count the linebackers and see how close they are to the line of scrimmage. And you can essentially create this sort of box that encapsulates the offensive line on our team and the defensive line and linebackers on their team and extend that box five yards away from our offensive linemen. And and that's sort of what you're getting. If you're in that area, you're in the box. But LSU has six guys in the box when they open the game with nine or even 10 guys in the box. And you have to say, well, why does LSU all of a sudden have six guys in the box? They're expecting us to throw the football. And lo and behold, we come out in play action and try to throw the football. And it's the one where Franks puts the ball deep into the end zone when no one's even there anymore because they're triple covering Brandon Powell. And you say to yourself, that's very, very interesting that LSU comes out on first down and knows that we're going to pass. That is a problem. Also, a question is raised is why don't you then run the ball when they're expecting pass was something I continue to highlight on this very show. So why did we all of a sudden find success? LSU doesn't have depth this year. They've been giving up a tremendous amount of rushing yards to just about everybody. And much like against the Vanderbilt game, we were able to sort of just run the ball because we could because we could overmatch them, because they have some personnel issues, uh, not because of anything spectacular we were doing with the play calling or play design game plan, uh, which is why we only scored 16 points. Uh, There were a lot of opportunities in this game to score more, but 
the success came, I think, just really via from the fact that LSU is not a good run defense. Uh, and so that was that was something that helped us. Now, with all that being said, LSU's game plan was not to was not to let us run the ball easily and to mitigate big plays, which they did. They loaded the box. They frequently attacked line of scrimmage. They were very, very aggressive. And yet, once again, we don't make them pay. I think the furthest pass we had, Allen, was like 15 or 16 yards, if I recall correctly. Uh, we only threw the ball down the field maybe twice in the entire game. And it continues to baffle me that we allow teams to play press man coverage up on the line of scrimmage, and we do not take shots of the guy who's got a cannon for an arm. So I thought these same reasons I've said each week are reasons why the offense both struggled and was somewhat successful uh, going going into it. So that's sort of the nutshell on what you see on film, and you probably witness that when you're watching the game live as well. It's, it's, it's at this point in time a repeating narrative. And the key stat for me over the course of the whole game was our, you know, execution on third down especially in the first half we could do nothing right on third down and we ended up having to punt i think three times on fourth and one and we were at places on the field where it made sense to punt but we've relied on those fourth and shorts to get um new set of downs repeatedly in our wins and we weren't able to do that and i think you saw in the second half we were catching them on some of these runs where in the first half we weren't blocking it as well um, there's a play where we shifted three men from the right to the left and twice, uh, we let somebody come three and the third time we ran it, we blocked it and we got, I think 25 yards on a league Davis run. So we executed better, but also we just shot ourselves in the foot so many times on offense. Um, and our third down conversion was, you know, from Freddie swing going backwards to just barely missing a first down. And it was really frustrating to see how many times we came so close. I really think Tyree Cleveland's absence in this game hurt. Um, obviously missing him, you know, is something everyone should notice, but we weren't able to challenge them deep. And I don't think the coaches, for whatever reason, thought that Swain and Hammond were, were going to be able to beat LSU's corners deep. Um, and so we never really challenged them straight up. And I think having a guy like Cleveland out there would have made LSU respect our passing game a little bit more, although that is a little conjecture on my part. Um, let's talk about Felipe Franks. What was your opinion of his play in this game? I thought that he showed growth in this game. I thought he played as a game manager, which is what they're asking him to do. The question I ask is why are they asking him to do that? Why are we sort of wasting what he does well? But when he threw the ball, he threw, he threw it really well. He still continues to struggle with his pre-snap reads. Uh, they're poor. He's not reading the right matchup at the right time. Uh, but when he does, he, he throws a really nice ball. He struggled with his protection calls. You saw the Mike Blitz, the middle linebacker Blitz, get home uh, in the third quarter very easily where you can tell he just completely misidentified the protection. So the same things he's been struggling with, he struggled with. But I thought he looked much more competent uh, this week compared to last week. He still looks like a redshirt freshman. But all in all, I thought I saw growth out of him. And I, I ask, looking at his stat line, why was he not throwing the ball more? And I definitely asked that given how LSU was defending us. Uh, and, and I think another thing needs to be noted here, and we're going we're gonna to cover this in our next question. But a lot of these plays, when you're watching the game live and you think, oh my gosh, Franks is not looking at his read, uh, it goes to the play design. In fact, a lot of these guys are not that open. And that's not, in my opinion, because the receivers don't run good routes. It's because the plays are nonsensical. 
they don't make sense. We're running routes that are wrong for the type of coverage the defense is employing. And I'm going to highlight this in this next little piece, uh, giving you an exact example where this occurred. And it occurred multiple times in the game. So I thought, given what I saw on film, Franks looks like a guy you can work with. He looks like a redshirt freshman that's still raw, but that has upside. And I just wonder why we're not tapping into his upside. I mean, the guy can throw the football. Yeah, this is unfortunate because uh, I think he's going to get a lot of blame in this, you know, for this loss. And I don't know that he deserves it. He did most of what the coaching staff asked him to do. And of course, he's far from perfect. And the really unfortunate thing is that I think if Luke Del Rio starts this game, we probably win. And I've not been someone who's advocated for Luke Del Rio playing, you know, actually the opposite. I've pushed for Franks to play. And the theory with that is, you know, you're hoping that you're eking by with some of these games until Franks gets enough experience that he can really um, perform at a high level, but that bit us in the butt. And we're playing so conservatively that our margin for error is almost none. I thought we should have won this game fairly easily if we have some a little bit better execution, but really an, a more aggressive game plan, I think would have opened up the game so much LSU could not have scored into the 20s with us, not even close. And we played a game that allowed them to stay in it. We said we're going to try to win close, which we've been doing. But then if you don't execute and you get in a situation where you have something unfortunate happen, like a missed extra point, all of a sudden the game is in danger. And that's really frustrating because we're a more talented team currently than LSU, which is not something you can say very often. And so that's the thing going back and looking at this and seeing the missed opportunities, seeing the plays left on the field, but it shouldn't have to be that close. You shouldn't have to execute perfectly to beat an overmatched LSU team who's currently struggling on both offense and defense. Now you've referenced here some of our coaching decisions and coaching schemes. Tell us what you're talking about with that. What did you pick up? Give us an example. Well, I had a conversation over the weekend with several people and it sort of surrounded this. Okay, hey, we're not scoring. It looks really bad. Is there is there reason for hope? Is there reason to think that things are getting better? And I, and I think the, the real answer to that question is no. And I'm going to give you the simplest answer to this question that I can. If you go watch the service academies play, go watch Air Force, watch Army, watch Navy. Uh, these teams will play what you would consider to be sound football. They might go play an opponent that is overmatched or they're overmatched. But in the game, they will play good, technically sound football. And you know the reason they lose is simply because their players are not as talented as the other team's players. We do not play technically sound football on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, basically at all. Now, Alan, you already mentioned one, which is Swain on third down. He's going to take that catch and run backwards. Swain's been in the program for a long time. How a guy on that kind of situation in third down doesn't know that you catch that pass and you get vertical points to coaching. I want to point to, and I'm highlighting, again, simple examples here, right? I could spend 30 minutes walking you through each moment this happened, but I'm going to highlight some simple ones to illustrate how coaches make a difference in these games and how consistent coaching makes a big difference. A first and 10 late in the game, LSU shows us man-to-man coverage, uh, essentially with no safety. And we run the correct route combination the correct route combination, which does not happen often either. 
but we run Peyton Manning's favorite man-to-man play. We have twins or two receivers on the right. We have Brandon Powell on the slot. And then we have, I believe, Swain as the wide receiver. Swain is running a slant to create a pick on Brandon Powell's man, except Brandon Powell is very slow to run his route, does not utilize the pick, and then attempts to run his wheel. So it's a slant wheel concept. Again, a very basic man beater. And Powell is nowhere near Swain for the pick, winds up not even utilizing the rub route pick, and it's completely covered and we throw the ball out of bounds. That play should have been a touchdown. If you execute that play, it's a touchdown. Except we're not executing it, and you have to ask yourself why. What's going on in practice? It's a very simple route to run. Brandon Powell runs it, I mean, just completely wrong. Going a little bit further, we follow up that with a horrific route combo on third down. So now we're in third down, and we have an excellent matchup, which we got all game long, by the way, which is our slot receiver, or in this case, our tight end, against the linebacker cover two. The open spot against a defense like this is the middle of the field, uh, and that's what you'd want to be hitting. And in this example, it's third down and eight. LSU, super aggressive, has been blitzing us frequently in the game. You would think, hey, let's hit a middle route. A middle route is exactly what we should be hitting. That's exactly what we should be doing, Alan, is running some sort of seam route in the middle. That's the hole in the defense. What do we run? We run a deep out instead with Brandon Powell. We run an in route with our receiver, and he sits. And we run a post route with our with our wide receiver. And what this creates, essentially, is nobody that's open. Brandon Powell would have been wide open if he had run a simple slant route, which, by the way, would have been the check on any NFL team. You get Brandon Powell against a linebacker, and there's no linebackers in the middle of the field with the safety 25 yards of the ball. You run a slant. That's a big gain. That might be a touchdown. You can see it on film for yourself late in the fourth quarter. But the route combos we're running are completely nonsensical for the defenses that we're getting. And lastly, on the fourth down play, this is probably the easiest one to watch. On the fourth down play, Brandon Powell's in the slot. On the left side of your screen, he's in the slot. In front of him, you have the guy who's been defending him, who's LSU's nickel, number one, the entire game, who really has not defended the slot the entire game. He's just defending the run. And on this very play, on fourth and three, with the game on the line against LSU, hated LSU at home, All you had to do was run Brandon Powell on a hitch route, a little seam go, a little flare out, a little pop route, any one of those routes, and he easily, easily picks up the first down. Now, you would have known this because all game long, you've seen number one not cover the slot route at all. All he's really done is be a run defender. So he's not going to cover him. He's not even guarding him. And instead, what does Brandon Powell run? He runs an in route into four LSU defenders. He actually runs his route into the defenders. This is not Frank's fault. It's a terrible play design. The guys on the edge are not open. We're not taking advantage of the holes in the defense. And to put all this like in a simple little bow here for you, good passing offense creates routes that have receivers running into open fields of grass. And the quarterback essentially reads the open fields of grass and throws it there. Our routes oftentimes leave open fields of grass and go into covered fields of grass by the defenders. It's absolutely mind-boggling. And to make all of these things worse, the routes that we run, how we run them, things that are being done are not technically sound. They are not sound given three years of this same coaching staff, Doug Nussmeyer, McElwain. These guys have all been there. This stuff should not happen. You should not have veteran receivers missing on rub routes. You should not have these situations happening at these times. 
there's a lot of poor coaching going on on the offensive side of the football that is leading us to underachieve tremendously. This, in my opinion, is not Felipe Franks' fault. This is not his fault. I continue to believe that if we were running different routes and different patterns, he would do very, very well given a slight system change. But don't fool yourself. This is not because we have a redshirt freshman at quarterback. This is entirely a coaching situation that finds us yet again in year three, ranked below 100 in offense with way too much talent to justify that. Now, lastly, Alan, I want to cover this this other coaching piece. This is when things really get bad, right? Michael P. Ryan, at the end of the game, says to the media, we were having a lot of trouble getting plays called into us at the end of the game. Now, I know what I think of that, but what does that strike you as, Alan, to hear the running back in the huddle at the end of the game basically saying, hey, we are not getting the play call fast enough? It's tough to say. You know, on some people interpret that as a criticism of Franks that he wasn't getting, you know, it turned around quick enough from reading what the coaches were telling him to telling the team in the huddle. Um, I think there's also a big part of this, which is that the coaching staff is not relaying it to him quick enough. So hard to say for certain. Um, and I don't know exactly what LaMichael meant by that. There's obviously um, some coaching improvement that would need to go on. If it's not coming down quick enough, if he's taking too long, you've got to get it to him quicker. So I don't know. It's frustrating that that is continues to be a problem for us. Yeah, to me, to me, when you watch it on film, you can see that Franks is sitting there oftentimes winding his arm. Give me the play. Give me the play. And this actually happens throughout the game. And then when he gets the play, you know, the lineup happens and it's not perfect yet. It's certainly not the level that Luke Del Rio would have it at. But there's so much indecision on our coaching staff that, that McIlwain at the end of the game talks about how we need to have more urgency with four minutes left to go in the game. Uh, whose fault is that? Call the plays faster. Run some tempo. I'm not sure what that stuff even means. When coaches say that kind of stuff, we need to have more urgency. You're the one calling the play. Call it faster. Be decisive. Get it in. Uh, So to me on the film, the players are sitting there and they're waiting. They are waiting for a play call. And there's a reason why right now we're almost dead last in plays run per game. And every week, McIlwain talks about how we got to go faster and we got to run quicker in the shot clock. And every single week, it doesn't happen. So who do you blame for that? Certainly not the players, in my opinion. But as we all know, I'm way over this offensive coaching staff, and uh, certainly hang all of the blame on it. So that's not a surprise to any of you that are listening. But this game highlighted, I think, it was a master class in all of the things that frustrate me so greatly about how this team is coached. Now, Alan, there were some bright spots in this game, somehow. It feels bad. We lost Ted Orgeron. You know, that's horrible. Uh, Paul Feinbaum said as much. Florida lost Ted Orgeron. It's a signature loss. No one wants to lose Ted Orgeron. But give me a bright spot or two from this game. One, a guy that we've you know, singled out for his poor play in recent weeks and you know, conjectured that it might be because he wasn't healthy enough. But Chauncey Gardner um, did fairly excellently, at least in the tackling portion of his game, because it was something that he was repeatedly failing at. And I thought he was willing to stick his nose in there and make a tackle. And so that was good to see from him. Because I know he probably heard the criticism. Uh, I think he indicated as much on social media. Uh, so I was pleased that, you know, as a safety, he was willing to, you know, start performing the things that we're asking him to do. What was, what was the bright spot for you from our players? 
I thought Chauncey Gardner was the biggest bright spot. You know, we've sort of dogged him all year long for his tackling. And, and as the game went on, he actually even started hitting hard. So whether that's his health, which let's cross our fingers and hope it was, we've referenced that. That was that was really solid. Uh, I want to highlight the linebacker play. You know, much maligned, but I thought in this game, they continue to prove to me that once they figure it out, they're very, very solid. This is two weeks in a row now where they got torched in the first half of a game. And the second half locked it down. Uh, so I've continued to see improvement from them, which is what you want to see. Look, you have young players. They're going to make mistakes. It's football. They're not going to play perfectly. But I've continued to watch them grow. Uh, and I wanted to highlight that. I thought that was a good indication of where they could be in the future as they, they get more reps. And on the offensive side of the ball, for me, you know, continuing bright spot is just Malik Davis. The guy is exceptional. Uh, Tony with him those two guys need to be touching the ball even more than they did and I think they got it maybe 50 some odd percent of the time in this game they need to be touching in the biggest moments uh, and that's something I think we have failed to do is, is those guys are not necessarily getting touches when it matters the most and I think at this point in time we are what we are uh, we know the coaches are not changing the philosophy and so they should at the very least continue to feed the two guys who are averaging the most yards per carry on the team uh, just give them the ball. I mean, that that's kind of a simple solution uh, to the problem, at least at this level one example of it. And I thought that uh, those guys continue to shine. They're they're clearly the best players in the field every game they play. And then Alan Tom Petty can't go can't men- can't do this game without mentioning Tom Petty. I know you weren't there, but I'm wondering what it sounded like to you, you know, out there in Moscow. But that was a really cool moment. The LSU band playing during it was not cool. I don't know if they were aware that was happening. They also have their own third quarter tradition. But that was really neat. And I'm glad to hear that that I think is going to stay for the future because not only does it make sense lyrically to play that at the end of the third quarter, but that's a really cool experience to be celebrating a Gainesville guy, uh, you know, world famous song, singing it in the swamp. That's that's cool. And I thought to myself when it was happening, it's a tradition I'd like to see continue. Yeah, I loved it. Uh big Tom Petty fan. And, you know, I didn't know how it would show up on video, but it sounded amazing on the clips that I got to see. And it was probably the moment, um, you know, other than maybe the, the Hail Mary against Tennessee that I wished I was there for the most. Um, and yeah, I'm really cool thing that the people who are, you know, organizing the culture around the games put on, and I would love to see it continue. I wish that we had a win stamped on top of it to really cement it. Um, but really cool moment and you know, something I wish I was there for. Highlighting a few other places we struggled because it's hard to cover everything in one fell swoop. Uh, <laughs> and we mentioned the coaching, and I'll piggyback on that one. We talked last week about utilizing the trip-wide set, so put three receivers on the far side of the field and how well those worked for Troy and Mississippi State in the run game. And keep in mind that Troy does not run that kind of offense. Their coach said as much after the game. Uh, we did not employ it a single time. So to me, film study, game prep, whatever you think is going on, uh, a missed opportunity there to run the ball, I think, at an even higher level. And then secondly, we talked a lot last week about blitzing, and we blitzed in this game. We blitzed multiple times on third down, and Matt Canada caught us. And uh, you know he primarily caught us because our safeties were in man-to-man coverage, and they just, they just didn't do a great job, didn't tackle well, allowed them to convert on first down. So for those of you out there that keep, keep really wanting us to blitz more, Blitzing is a risk, and I'm all about being aggressive, and you have to kind of play to your strengths, and our strengths are not our safeties right now, and I thought it was highlighted in this game. When we blitz on those third and longs, they generally made us pay for it, 
we were doing a much better job rushing for and covering. And uh, again, I think that Randy Shannon will blitz a lot more when he has the right personnel and especially when he has the safeties he can trust. But for now, it's a big risk for us to be blitzing on those downs because we just really don't have the, the safeties and or a linebacker to cover that. I thought that popped out to me. Uh, anything else we missed, Alan, in your mind that we struggled on in this game? Yeah, I want to mention the blitzing as well since we brought it up. I mean, something I noted immediately, we got burned on it so many times. And not that we blitzed a ton, felt like every, almost every time we blitzed, we got burnt with it. So, you know, yeah, something to continue to look out for as we move forward. And I don't know, this is, I don't know if this, there's really anybody to blame for this, but we've had a an almost crazy lack of turnovers in the last few games. You know, it's not always like, you know, dropped interceptions, like some Duke Dawson stuff. But there are moments where we're in position to strip the ball, and it seems like we make the right play. Ball doesn't pop out. I think we're getting pretty unlucky in that phase of the game. And so our offense needs more help, obviously. So the defense, whatever they can do to continue to create turnovers, I know you don't snap your fingers and that happens. You gotta be, but you can be in the right place. You can work on the right drills. Hopefully that's being done. But that has to be something that we improve on if we're going to win some of these bigger games. All right, let's do a little segment that we're going to just call the coaching corner because it seems that every single week we have to talk about this. So it's going to get its own segment name. And in the coaching corner, Alan, I'm going to give you two scenarios. The first is what happened at the end of the first half. Uh, We essentially get the ball back with 25 or 30 seconds left. And Franks comes out, takes a sack, and we eat it and go into halftime. Fan or not a fan of that strategy? Not a fan at all. And I understand, you know, not being overly aggressive or not wanting to make a mistake, but you have a quarterback who doesn't throw interceptions. I think he has one on the year, and that wasn't from a bad read, just from a slightly bad pass. And we have a kicker who's kicked it 80 yards, at least on social media. And so if you can get in any kind of range, I don't know, that was crazy to me. And obviously when he took a sack, that wasn't, a good result there, but we still had a timeout. And the fact that we had only put three points up on the board. Now, if you're moving the ball and you're doing things well and you're up, yeah, just eat it. Why take a chance? But when you need to create more points, we lost the game by one point. We have to be more aggressive right there. And you have a guy with a big arm and going against an LSU offense, you know, that it's probably not going to go right down the field on you in 10 seconds. So I hated that. And normally I'm okay with, kneeling it out and not being, you know, overly aggressive. But I thought in that moment, we really needed it. Yeah, we came out throwing the ball, which is nice. At least we came out and we were going to throw the ball, take a sack, and then we eat it. And like you mentioned, what's the point of having Eddie Pinheiro? Here we are in year two of Eddie Pinheiro, and we've yet to really attempt a long field goal in these situations when you think we've got a chance to do it. Just don't even have that guy then. That's silly. Let me give you a fun counter example. On the road on Saturday night, Alabama up 17-3 to against Texas A&M. They get the ball with 30 seconds left. And Jalen Hurts on play number one gets sacked. And Nick Saban calls a timeout. On second down, they complete a pass for a first down. And uh, the next play, Jalen Hurts gets sacked. And Nick Saban calls a timeout. And then with five seconds left, they're going to run some sort of Hail Mary or combo route. And Jalen Hurts essentially runs the ball for like two yards. But interesting difference there. And I'm with you, Alan. The answer to this question is not you always go for that field goal. It's not always or never in this situation. 
But with the personnel that we have, with a guy like Franks who can throw the ball a mile, uh, with a kicker who can kick it a mile, yeah, this is when you try to score some points, whether it's a pass interference call or anything else that gets you into field goal range, you do that. So as the first episode of Coaching Corner goes, I think you and I are in agreement. We would have liked to have seen a timeout called there and a consistent attempt to, to score some points, uh, not be so afraid of the boogeyman, if you will. And the second one, the much bigger one, really, in this example is how we handled the end of the game. Now, we have the first part, which I'm just going to address very quickly. We call the timeouts really early. Do I have a problem with that? No, I don't, given that we were going to need to run the ball primarily to get into field goal range. It's not an orthodox strategy, but there's a tactical reason to defend it. I do have a problem, however, with how long it took us to run those plays. We got the ball back with four minutes left. We very easily could have gone up-tempo and gotten two possessions out of that, which is what I think we should have done. But we played for the silver bullet, and we lost that gamble. But something happened that's more sinister, Alan. And that's Ed Orgeron on the other side showed his true colors of being a horrible football coach. And with a minute and 50-some-odd seconds left, and us with uh, no timeouts decides that he is going to not take a knee, Alan. He's not going to take a knee. He's not going to run the clock out in the conventional way. He's going to actually run the football, which begs the question. We're down one point. Should we have let LSU score in that situation? Of course. Yes. Of course, right? Yes. Of course you do. And, and this to me just demonstrates, I don't know what it demonstrates to you, but I'm laughing watching the game thinking, this just demonstrates the ineptitude of both of these coaches. On the LSU yes. side, you have Ed Orgeron, who's running the football, which is completely ridiculous. He should be taking a snap, walking backwards two or three or four yards, dancing around for a little bit to kill some extra time, falling on the ball, doing all the things you do to waste time. In no way, shape, or form should he be handing the ball off. And then the counter to that is, we should let him score, because he would have scored, and we don't do it. It's just, it's a mind blow, right? I mean, I'm sure your mind was blown. I'm sure you were jumping up and down in Moscow, yelling at the television like, hey, let him score. And the game unceremoniously ends with with nothing, right? I mean, how bad was the decision of that? That was epically bad. I think any eight-year-old who's ever played Madden would know that you let the other guy score if he's willing to do that. Now, maybe the first play caught them off guard because they were shocked that they ran the ball and maybe thought, oh, whoa, you what's happening, you know, tackle him. But when then they ran it again, that was a total mind blower that we could not see that our only chance to win was to let them score. What were they hoping was going to happen on the other side? The LSU might just fumble the ball. Um, I, I don't know. That, that really killed me. I mean, the end of the first half, you know, you can make disagreements. I can be hot about that, but there are reasons. This, there was no reason. I, it's like they fell asleep on the sideline there. This, that was inexcusable to me. No, I it's really, right? really yeah. frustrating. I that. mean, entirely inexcusable. I mean, if your opponent's going to give you a chance to get back in the game, you take that chance. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And, and what's the height of irony here, right, is last week, McElwain puts out the, I know some people like to call him the swamp donkey now, uh, but, you know, whatever you want to call him, the teeth, the gopher teeth, the face, the frustrated teeth face, I guess we'll call it, at Malik Davis for scoring and goes on a, a small post-game tirade about how you can't score there. And then this <laughs> this week, we're in the situation where we need a team to score and we're not thinking on that level? That's just bizarre. It's sad and bizarre and stupid because 
I'm pretty sure LSU would have scored and we would have had a chance to tie the game, but we didn't. We didn't get it. So, you know, here we are talking about it on our podcast in our Coaching Corner segment. Wow. So most of the time this Coaching Corner, I know you're a little more frustrated than I am. I've been kind of, you know, a little bit apologetic for the coaching staff, but that last that last decision to close out the game left me just flabbergasted. I, I didn't even have much emotion when the, you know, the clock reached zero because I was just so stunned. Okay. Putting that to bed, we get a lot of questions from you guys and we love them. So we're going to try to answer a few of them here. So these are questions for the pod. This one, we've talked a lot about coaches on the hot seat. Well, where would we put Mac on the hot seat scale? James, why don't you answer this first? Ooh, you know, I'm going to answer this first and then ping it back to you and then get into my rationale. But for me, I said all along this year was a big and important year for me. And then I needed to see progress. I needed to see style. We asked this question of ourselves in the first preseason episode, style over record, right? And what did you and I say? Style is by far the most important thing this year. Uh, and there's a bunch of reasons why. And we are failing on that metric. To coincide with that is what I like to call my my three-year rule for coaches. If you're trying to identify an elite coach, you essentially will know whether or not he's elite within three years. And here we are in year three. And for all intents and purposes, we are going to be a train wreck minus some sort of miracle. So how hot is Max seat on my scale? It's like a four and a half, maybe a five. And in fact, at this point in time, I'm almost all the way in the camp of firing Mac. And this is not a reaction to the LSU game. It's a systematic observation over three years with the small caveat. And it's a very small caveat at this point in time that maybe if you changed your offensive staff, the recruiting, what he's done with, I think, a lot of the other things in the program that I do like gets turned around. But for me, I'll support this argument in a second. His seat is super hot. I want to say I'm over it because I am emotionally and I'm ready for something different, but I haven't had time to evaluate who the different person would be and how it functions. So for now, I'm going to say four and a half on James's hot ski tail. How about you? All right. I, I would say he's pretty, he's much lower on my personal hot seat, maybe like a three. And if I'm going to, how we usually answer this question is, how does the administration feel? How hot is his seat to the athletic director? And I'm going to say it's like a 1.5. I don't see a scenario where McElwain gets fired unless he loses every single game from here on out. And even then, that might be questionable. Uh, I, I think there's some adversity. I, I do like McElwain as an overall head coach. Now, obviously, we've talked at length about the offensive struggles. And so I'm not ready to write him off. We knew this was going to be a little bit of a transition year defensively. He's had some setbacks offensively. The whole Will wheel, wheel Greer saga, we've mentioned that many times. I feel like the future looks bright enough that I'm not willing to even really entertain firing him. And here's the big reason why. When we fired Muschamp, you and I sat down and looked at the coaching candidates. We told this story on the pod before. The only name that fit a lot of my criteria, you know, outside someone like Jim Harbaugh or some someone out of our reach 
was McIlwain. And not that that was for sure going to work. And so unless you took a major shot on somebody, he seemed the only candidate that fit a lot of our, you know, checked all of our boxes, including being a head coach previously, uh, being an offensive minded person, you know, we'll see if that holds up. So I don't know that there's a person out there that I would want to hire. And I haven't dived deep on this, but I'm not willing to pull the trigger on that unless I would be certain that I got somebody better and I'm not there yet. So he's not nearly as hot on my hot seat list or I don't, and more importantly, I don't think he's on any kind of hot seat with the administration. Yeah. And that's a good point. I, I famously said, Butch Jones is at like a four or three and a half and people are like, what the heck? And it was based on the buyout in the administration. And certainly at this point in time, I think he's probably at like a one. Uh, but on James's personal scale, it's real hot. And, and here's one of the reasons why I think at a program like Florida, which is an elite program, even if it's not right now, you're looking to hire coaches that can compete for national titles. And you'd say, okay, well, if I were to conduct a study of what kind of coaches win national titles, would I see anything that's consistent? Would there be a correlation between coaches that are elite, uh, based upon wins or record or how quickly they do stuff? And, and the answer is a resounding yes. Statistically, it's very significant what goes on. I'm gonna I'm gonna speed walk you through these coaches. If you want more information, you can go look at their own bios in detail. But we're gonna walk you through ten of them here, or so and and stick with this point because it's it's very important. And I'm gonna start with the one that gets brought up a lot of time as like a critique of the three year rule. And the three year rule is very simple. If the coach is not competing for a national championship or taking his program to a high that it has not seen in like a decade within the first three years of his coaching job, he's never going to get there. You cannot find an example where it happens. And now I'm going to walk you through all of the coaches that have won national titles, and let's look at the resume. Let's start, Alan, with Dabo Sweeney. So Dabo takes over for Tommy Bowden. Uh, Tommy Bowden was there for 10 years, never won 10 games. Now, granted, you had a shorter season by one game. Keep that in mind. Tommy finished ranked four times. His highest was number 14. The other times, he was in the 20s. Okay? So Dabo takes over. He promptly goes nine and five, finishing ranked six and seven. Year three, he goes 10 and four, losing in the Orange Bowl, finishing ranked. Keep in mind, they had not won 10 games at all at that point in time. Then goes 11 and two, 11 and two, 10 and three, 14 and one, 14 and one. Finished ranked every single year since year three. So he doesn't win a national title in year three, but he takes Clemson to a much higher rate of play in year three. And keep in mind, Dabo's the example, Alan, that is given. When people say, hey, the three-year rule doesn't hold for Dabo. Well, I would say au contraire. He showed tremendous improvement of this football team. And then, in fact, went on to rip off a bunch of wins. Bob Stoops, everyone loves Bob Stoops here at Florida, took over an Oklahoma team that finished ranked three times in the previous 10, no times in the previous six. They hadn't won 10 games in that span. In year two at Oklahoma, year two at Oklahoma, Bob Stoops goes 13-0. Goes on to finish in the top seven the next five years and most of his career. So there's the three-year rule. Nick Saban, you can start way back at Michigan State, program that was winless when he took that over. Winless, no 10-win se no seasons in the past 10, none in the previous four, really, really poor shape when he takes over. He goes 6-5, six 6-6, and 7-5, six and 6-6, six, and, six and, six, and then 10-2. and two. Okay, so you're saying, well, wait a minute, James, where's the three-year rule there? Well, Michigan State at that point in time was anything but an elite program, right? So you've got to see a build there. So that's where I say to you, the three-year rule applies to elite institutions. And now let's look at Saban at LSU. That'll fit the rule, right? 
LSU, one 10-win season in the previous 10 before Saban, finished ranked three times, took over when LSU was 4-7 and seven and 3-8 and eight in the previous two seasons. Saban promptly goes 8-4, and 10-3, and 8-5, and 13-1, winning a national title, finishing ranked three of the five years. So a very prompt turnaround. He won the national title in year four, but in year two, hit a 10-3 and three record, right? Recruiting was building, momentum was building. So you could say, okay, maybe that's kind of like us, um, right? You got to factor in the style situation. Then he goes to Alabama. Alabama finished ranked three times in the previous 10 before he got there. He goes 7-6, and 12-2, and 14-0, wins the national title. Urban Meyer, a story that's very well known, takes over Utah. Previous decade, they finished ranked one time. None within the previous eight years. He promptly goes 10-2 and 12-0, and and finishing ranked both times. Takes over a Florida team, finished ranked once in the previous three years at number 24. No more than eight wins. Goes on 9-3, national title in his second year. Finished ranked every year but the last one. Jimbo Fisher, same situation. Takes over for Bowden. Bowden was ranked once in the previous four years. Hadn't finished in the top 10 since the year 2000. Fisher goes 10-4, 9-4, 12-2, Les Miles takes over for Saban. Goes 11-2, 11-2, 12-2, wins a national title. Pete Carroll takes over for USC. No ranked seasons in the previous six. Eight wins was the most. Goes 6-6, six 11-2, and 12-1, six, and, and, and wins a national title. Then starts cheating. Chip Kelly takes over Oregon. Oregon was actually decent when Chip Kelly took over. However, Chip promptly goes 10-3, 12-1, goes to the BCS title. 12-2, 12-1. James Franklin, this one, Alan, I know you'll like. That's why I saved him down here for the end. James Franklin takes over Penn State. Penn State fresh off a bunch of scholarship limitations. Hadn't finished season ranked since 2009. Goes 7-6, 7-6, 11-3, finishing ranked number 7. This year, undefeated playoff contender. So how many years does this rebuild take? Mack takes over a team that finished once in the past five years. Finished ranked two years in a row, 10 and 4 and 9 and 4, and he should have an additional win or two, like we mentioned. But is he Gene Chizik? Where Gene Chizik wins a national title with Cam Newton and trends downward? Is he maybe Gus Malzahn? Goes to the BCS title game, but then trends downward. The thing about the elite coaches is they don't trend downward. And if they have that odd year like Urban had or like Nick Saban had, it comes after a really stellar year the year before and overachieving a year. And lastly, the style of the team is building momentum each year. What they're putting on film is getting better and better and more exciting, not flat like us. So ask yourself who Mac resembles and then say, who does Florida resemble? Are we Michigan State? Or are we more of an elite program where things get done quickly? And I think that for me, it's very difficult, Alan, to justify what Mac has done and where he is because Florida is never in a state of complete rebuilding, in my opinion. If I am the athletic director an elite coach only needs three years to turn this program into a juggernaut. That's all that it takes. And you might not win a national title, by the way, in that time. But stylistically, you are competing at an elite level. You are playing close games against the other important teams that you face. It does not, and there is not, a narrative that displays coaches that have been somewhere for six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years before they get an already or once elite program built up. Now, with all that being said, guys to watch for, Tom Herman at Texas. He's in year one. Let's see what happens with the three-year that he has, right? Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma taking over a very good program. Let's see where they go in three years. You can watch some of these guys 
and get an idea for what happens. And there are certainly more examples than just them. But here I am sitting at this crossroads and it's hard for me. He violates my rule. Stylistically, we're terrible. He's an offensive guy and our offense is horrible. He's violating so many rules for me, Alan, that at this point in time, (laughs) what am I clinging to statistically? And that's my monologue. And hopefully that covers it for the whole season. I don't know right now what I could see that changes my opinion because nothing he's shown me in three years outside of Will Greer, I think on his own being exemplary has given me any confidence that we're going in the direction based upon what the team does in the field on offense. And he's an offensive guy, right? Shouldn't we be frustrated that our offensive guy can't run offense? Yes. And I think that's the basis of every Florida fans frustration is that our offense continues to struggle. If you put it kindly, now the season isn't over. So we do want to say that, um, or at least I want to say that. And I, and I'm not willing to just totally burn the whole thing down because I don't want to start over again. I think our best path forward is Jim McElwain being successful. And maybe that's naive, but that's where I feel like, um, at least at this point in the season, I want us to keep building towards that. And I'm saying all that assuming that Doug Nussmeyer is not here next year, that the writing is on the wall for him and we'll have another opportunity uh, to revamp this offense. And James, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the Urban Meyer example here at Florida. I think year three looks a lot like year three for Urban. Now, we didn't have the same success with McElwain in year two as Urban did. But Urban also had a transcendent player in Tim Tebow. And Urban was quoted at the time saying, if we didn't get Tim Tebow, that sets the program back three years or five years or whatever he said. And maybe we had that guy in Will Greer and we lost him. I think it set the program back years. We've talked about that so much. We're lacking that transcendent player on offense, especially a quarterback. And so I think you have to take that into account that, you know, Urban in year three had Tim Tebow. We do not, obviously. Yeah, and there's two other things to, to bring up in this context of this conversation that's going to increase frustration of fans. And one is is Jim Harbaugh. So we, we compared him where we wanted him to be our coach. We knew it wasn't true, but it was sort of a fun comparison. And they're having a, what you would consider to be a struggling year at Michigan. Now, they, they crushed us. Just keep that in mind, right? They hammered us. Uh, they just lost a, a tough loss to Michigan State, a team they really shouldn't lose to, and, and they don't look pretty on offense. Last year, they had a really solid year, I think, by all accounts. And I think that most people would look at Harbaugh's track record at Stanford, turning around a program that had done nothing for a long time before him and turned them into a contender where they have remained a contender that shows that Harbaugh's resume, of course, is different than McIlwain's. And you can tolerate a fluctuating year like this one. But there are questions to be raised, by the way, about Harbaugh being unable to win, quote unquote, the big one yet. I would say that's a fair criticism of him. And uh, I would also say maybe the nail in the coffin for us skaters is going to be what happens at the end of October with a a certain gentleman named Kirby Smart. Georgia looks like the team Florida is supposed to look like. Now, not necessarily stylistically. They're obviously a heavy run team, but they're crushing inferior opponents. This is year two for Kirby Smart. By all accounts, that team was decimated with talent. And here it is in the midst of a quick rebuild. And oh, by the way, they're playing freshman quarterback. So we got we have problems. We have issues here, in my opinion. We have some real problems in the name of the Georgia football team, and that game is going to eliminate things. All right, Alan. 
Let's hop into the mailbag portion of our segment here. We've got a lot of questions from a lot of you. And since we tend to, me, I won't put Alan on this, since I tend to monologue on things, because there's just so many points I want to talk about, I'm going to do my best to give really snappy questions or answers to these questions. And I know Alan already does that. So hopefully we'll be able to answer what you want in a fashion. Alan, I'm going to walk us through these questions, let you take a crack at them first, and I'll fill in any blanks that are there. Uh, the first one is, does the coaching staff have a good reason, in your opinion, for not trusting Franks based upon what you can see, keeping in mind that Alan and I obviously are not at practice and have no practice information? The short answer to me is no. But again, I don't know what he's putting on film in practice. Feels like we've said this a ton of times. If you have a guy with his specific skill set, you don't have him throwing checkdowns, you have him throwing deep. Now, obviously, there's a lot that goes into that, but... He hasn't given me a reason not to trust him yet in the limited action we've seen from him. Yeah, the answer for me is a big capital no in this one. There's there's not a good reason from what we can see in the games. And the games, I think, a lot of times are more important than the practices. Because uh, if you can do it in live action, you can definitely do it in practice. But regardless, no, no, not a reason. It's one of the reasons why I am so frustrated is is I'm not giving them a pass on that. And, and if you do think that's the case, then put somebody else in there. You know, we've got a lot of guys. It's quote unquote the best quarterback room McElwain's had at Florida. He loves the quarterback room. Put someone else in if that's the case. So I don't buy it. Uh, I don't think there's a good reason for it. Thoughts on Matt Corral? I'll take this one because I know Allen being in Moscow, you haven't really got to see a lot of him. Uh, my primary exposure to him is watching his high school tape and seeing him on Elite 11. So this is not a final judgment, but I will tell you he's very polished. We told you Franks was a raw kind of guy. At quarterback and corrals the opposite. He's he's much more polished technique wise, footwork wise. He seems a fair bit smarter. That's not a fair judgment on Felipe Franks. I've never met or talked to him, but on the surface seems a bit smarter. He has an extremely strong arm, and I think based upon what I can gather, uh, Corral will have to work on making a wide variety of throws. So uh, making touch passes, changing the velocity of his throw. That will be something he will have to focus on. But it's far too early to anoint anyone the savior. I will give you the case of Jacob Eason at Georgia. Uh, there's plenty of five stars that are amazing, and there's plenty of five stars that don't become what you think they will become. I think building a Cecil program involves having a bunch of those guys. So do I think he's good? Yes. Do I think he's the answer? Uh, no. You can never really pin it on one guy and know that. You know, you just get a bunch of them in there and, and coach them up and then see which one is best at the end of the day. Uh, that's the thoughts on Corral. All right. Host of questions about the offense and Mac. We're going to just kind of quick fire these things. Uh, a question is asked, is Frank's the problem, not Nuss? Is there any chance in your mind that's the case? Possibly, but I would, again, say that's a lower percentage. Yeah, for me, I'm at the point now where it's like, no, that there's no chance this is on Frank's. Uh, spoken to former Gator quarterbacks, and they seem to think that the public, including people like myself, are missing this concept, how difficult it is to play as a quarterback at a young age and all the new pieces, and that essentially it's not Doug Nussmeyer's fault. And I'll answer this one first because I'm not sure what Gator quarterbacks you talk to. I think there's a lot of opinions on the other side of that narrative uh, that do not agree with that, one of whom we've had on the show in Shane Matthews. Uh, I think Keywan's going to talk a little bit about that today, former NFL player and then myself. Uh, I do not buy into that narrative. In fact, we have a ton of returning starters. I think there's plenty of pieces in place for a redshirt freshman who's been in the program to succeed. There are plenty of other colleges who are having success. I do not buy that. I respect that they played quarterback for this institution, but that does not, in my opinion, mean they have necessarily a great opinion on that question. That's me, Alan. What do you think about that? Yeah, I would agree. I think we've been pretty clear that we think the, the majority of the blame is not with Felipe Franks. 
I will say though that having an elite quarterback doesn't fix everything. Look at UCLA, look at USC with Sam Darnold. You have to have the pieces around him. You have to have the right coaching and scheme. Um, so, and now obviously an elite quarterback can cover up a lot of stuff, but doesn't fix everything. All right, here's a here's a really interesting one. What's the biggest reason that Muschamp failed, and has Mac fixed that problem? This is interesting. So whatever you want to put it on, whether that's player development, choosing the right guys and recruiting, Muschamp failed because he wasn't willing or maybe couldn't help foster an explosive offense. And so far, McElwain obviously has not fixed that. And I know that you're ready to fire him. He's number five, he's at a five on your scale. Uh, so no, it hasn't been fixed, unfortunately. Yeah, if you closed your eyes and you put a comp- – well, don't close your eyes, but I guess you blotted out the names and put a comparison of each coach, you would see very eerily similarities when you take out the Will Greer effect and you look at the rest of those numbers. I think McElwain's 16 and 10 or 16 and 11 now against uh, competition post-Will Greer and Muschamp was very much the same. And this year, by the way, I'm sure you all thought about this, could very well turn into a 4 and 8 year. Not exactly 4 and 8 but sort of a dumpster fire year. Uh, and so it's, 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 you know, there's some things that are different, but there's also a lot of things that are the same. I certainly don't think it's been, quote, fixed. How about that? I think it's more of the same versus a difference. Uh, am I wrong to feel good is a question that we got. And that's not me personally. That's a question for a listener. Am I wrong to feel good, Alan? Is he wrong to feel no, good? No, I don't think so. There's still a lot of bright spots on this team. We talked about them lots on this podcast. Marco Wilson, and Henderson back there. There's a lot of good young players all over the place. The recruiting seems to be trending up. So no, I don't think you're wrong to feel good um, or have some positive thoughts about the team. Yeah, it's funny because there are a lot of good things. We keep highlighting them, which is what makes it confusing. But man, I can't feel good right now. I feel like garbage. It's not entertaining. Saturdays are just awful watching the Gators play. It's It's hard to overcome that. And then look at the brighter sides. But certainly recruiting does make me feel good. It's sort of the one thing I point to and say, hey, if we keep hauling in top five guys, you should be okay. But look, there's plenty of guys that have recruited really well and not made it either. So I don't feel good, but you're not wrong to feel good. Uh, Fixing the offense, we talked a lot about. I'm just going to touch on that for one second. How would I fix it? We've said it every single week. I'd run vertical routes. I would change the style. I'd employ a lot more, employ a lot more air raid concepts, and it would be a totally different looking offense. That's not going to happen. It's not even relevant. How do you fix it now? I think tangibly the simplest thing to do, Alan, is just to feed the ball to Davis and Tony as much as possible. I mean, I don't, I don't like that. It's not optimal. Keep in mind, I think it's a suboptimal strategy. But since we're clearly not going to realize the other one, if you're going to stick with your bunch sets and your your two tight end packages, then you're going to need to start calling the right plays at the right time. You're going to just need to give the ball to your playmakers. Just add nauseam. Just give them 90% of the touches and see where the chips fall. All right, Alan, quick touch here because you could spend hours on this one. Is there an offensive coordinator out there if Doug Nussmeyer gets fired this year that you like and you think, oh, I'd love to have that guy? In short, no, because I haven't looked at the landscape. And it's hard to know offensive coordinator versus head coach. There'll be some guys who surface, but they have to fit, you know, overall what McElwain wants to do. He's not going to hire a spread guy, I don't think. So there's nobody out there who is burning up the charts for me. Yeah, at this point in time, this is a question that needs to be answered with good research. And and rest assured, I will, I will answer this question later on in the season when the time gets closer. 
uh, because that's a question I'd like to answer for myself. And, and I want to know there are guys out there who are doing really good stuff. I'll tell you that uh, as to whether or not they're available and can be hired for this particular job. I don't know yet. And at this moment in time, haven't gotten that far in doing the research because I think as Alan rightfully said, Doug Nussmeyer will be kept as a shield for McIlwain this year. They will not fire him until the end of the year. And therefore at this point in time to look at the OC is not something we have time to, to do diligently, but it's a good question. It's one that's going to get asked a lot, I think, as the season moves further on. All right, piggybacking on that one, if we were to fire McIlwain, which no one really thinks we're going to, but let's assume the worst happens and we did. I know, Alan, there's a lot of the coaches you like. You keep tabs on this. Is there a guy or two that you really like and would say, hey, these would be guys I'd interview right away? Well, this is hard, too, because I don't know that these guys check all of the boxes for me yet. Uh, Jeff Brom at Purdue is a guy that's really intriguing to me, but I have not done a deep dive in Purdue. I'll tell you that. Uh, Mike Norvell at Memphis and the former Memphis coach, your boy, Justin Fuente at Virginia Tech, would be in the names that immediately leap to mind. But I don't know if I looked at them deeply whether I would still feel the same way. Yeah, that's kind of the thing, too. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on this question for now because I think there's a lot of season to be determined. And uh, you got to kind of let the chips fall where they may, see how teams finish. There are guys out there. This is not like a, a star-studded year. Chip Kelly's name will, of course, always be thrown out. Uh, but I think it's just like the previous question. You know, I think we'll name a list, but give us give us the time to really make it a good one and give the season a little bit more to see where the chips fall. All right, can Mac regain your trust, Alan? I, I know the answer to this one's got to be yes, given what you've been saying in this pod. Uh, I'm gonna twist yes. it. I'm gonna twist it a little bit and say, give me one thing he could do that would regain your trust the quickest. Man, that's a great question. I mean, other than you know us having a new offensive coordinator. I think in season, it would be seeing them utilize Felipe Franks' arm more down the field and trying to figure out a way uh, to get us bigger chunk plays in the passing game to complement the growth we've been seeing in the running game. If he fired Doug Nussmeyer as soon as this podcast was <laughs> at your listening ears, that would be step one for me. And then step two would be to actually watch increased productivity in the field because I don't think it would take long. Uh, so that's step one. When he fires Doug McNuff fired at the end of the season, then I'll have to watch next year and see what happens. But for me, trust is going to be his offense being good. And that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the year. A successful season this season for me was the style changing, and we are nowhere near that. All right, last one. Is the problem bigger than, let's just say, coaches? Doug Nussmeyer, Muschamp, McIlwain. We've had eight years, a host of coaches now. Is the problem the fans, the city of Gainesville? Is there a problem bigger than the coaches? No, absolutely not. I mean, currently, it's our personnel in part. And I do want to say that we've probably underestimated how much these suspensions and injuries have hurt this team. And normally when you lose a guy like Callaway, you've got Cleveland there. Or if Cleveland goes out, you have Callaway. It, it's probably bigger than we know um, in terms of the depth on this team. There's not a lot of scholarship guys out there. Okay, having said that, if you're the coach at Florida, you should always at least be decent. That's why it was so disconcerting when Muschamp went 4-8. and eight. That should never happen unless there's just a catastrophe of, like, epic proportions. And I don't think we're there this year. Now, we'll see what happens the rest of this year. Hopefully, 4-8 and eight is not a possibility. But, yeah, yeah I, don't think it's, I don't think it's a bigger problem than the coaches. 
Yeah, it's definitely not. No matter what elite program you are, USC, Texas, Florida, Ohio State, Michigan, name them all, you're only one coach away from being great again. And I think that's why the three-year rule is so powerful is that's really all it takes. As soon as you get that guy, you will be relevant and you will be really good. And if you're fortunate, he stays there for a long time. Uh, I think the faster you identify that guy, uh, the better are you are off. Now, keep in mind, there's very few of those guys. But I, I think that the problem is not bigger than coaches. It is the coaches. That's why you are successful in college football. And yes, the players win the game. But guess who recruits them? The coaches do. They have full choice of who they get. And so you got to be successful in that arena to make it in the first place. And then you have to actually be good with the X's and the O's. So that concludes the mailbag portion of our segment. We have just done a tremendous amount of deep diving here the first half of the show. Hope you guys have enjoyed it as much as Alan and I have. Uh, we're going to turn our attention now to the national games that went on last weekend, as well as do the SEC roundup, then turn it on over to Texas A&M and uh, prep for that particular game. Okay, so let's jump in and talk about those national games. Louisville, 25. NC State, 39. NC State with another big win. NC State. I predicted them to win this game. I feel good about it. Uh, Louisville, kind of soft. NC State, good. They're a good team. I don't know how they lost to South Carolina. Uh, Debo Samuel must really have been the truth. It's too bad they lost him. But, yes, good win, NC State. Interesting result from that first game. Okay, Georgia covers 45, Bandy 14. Just the sum of all my fears, like Kirby Smart is is not on a bonfire at all. The unlit bonfire, <laughs> he's so far away from it right now. It's frustrating. Uh, the day of reckoning seems to be coming for us. This was a wild game, and I turned it on right after our game, and it gave me a little bit of solace. Miami 24, FSU 20. I grew up a Hurricanes fan. I have always hated Florida State, therefore, and uh, loved that Mark Richt and the boys got it done, just breaking Florida State's heart. Great ending. Yeah, wonderful, great football game. I didn't get to watch, obviously, most of it, like most of the Florida fans, but I did catch uh, extended pieces of the highlights and most of the last fourth quarter and loved it. Just loved every second of that. All right, another really good game. Uh, West Virginia 24, TCU 31. TCU holds on. My boy Will Greer lit the world on fire in that game. Uh, man, I think he threw for nearly 400 yards, but could not get it done when he had the ball at the end. Good game. TCU is obviously for real now. I thought, as I said before, this game, they'd have to win this game, I think, to prove to me that they were actually solid, and I think they are. So keep an eye on them and the and what seems to be now maybe the wide-open Big 12. Michigan State, we mentioned this. Polls won on the Fighting Harbaugh's 14-10. to 10. I mean, Harbaugh cannot beat Michigan State. There was the there was the botched punt a couple of years ago. I mean, it's kind of crazy that they continue to lose to them. It's really truly insane. But like Mike D'Antoni says, Michigan State's built to beat power teams, and there's something to that, uh, and that's for real. And in that kind of weather, that was the best case scenario for Michigan State. I yeah. mean, they, they they got a million turnovers, and yet they still barely won. So it was sort of the perfect storm for them, literally and figuratively. But either way, I enjoyed it. All right, Washington State continues to impress 33-10 to 10 over Oregon. Who was without their quarterback? So, you know, maybe don't go crazy jumping on the Cougar bandwagon. Or maybe you're already leading the charge there, James. Oh, gosh. What could we do to get Mike Leach here right now? Like, we may never win a <laughs> national title. Fine. 
at this point in time, I'll trade that because I just want to have fun watching football. And in case you haven't watched Washington State play yet, please turn it on and watch them play. I mean, they are just so much fun. I would give a whole lot for that to be happening in Gainesville. Yeah, I love Mike Leach. Yeah, I don't know that I actually want him as my coach, but it's fun to think about those scenarios. All right, let's move over to the SEC. Let's cover the games we haven't gotten to yet. Kentucky 40 barely squeaks by what seems to be a really bad Mizzou team. All I all I do is see these scores and think how bad we are. And that's why I want to fire McElwain unless like some magic happens. And come on. Like Georgia's crushing these teams and we're barely winning. We should have lost to Kentucky. We should be one in what, four? Really? Could be? Easily? Probably should be? And then these two teams play each other in a quote-unquote thriller in the SEC? Ugh, that's all I think about when I see that result. Yes. Auburn starting to put it together. 44, Ole Miss 23. Yeah, and it was not that close. And actually, each week, Alan, no. I, each week I think of you talking about how Gus Malzahn gets things rolling later on. And one of our really good friends, Alan and I's really good buddy, is a huge Auburn guy. And uh, there's a lot of frustration in that fan base too. But there's one thing you can't deny, and that's what you say, Alan, is when, when Gus gets it going, they get better and better as the year goes on. And that certainly seems to be true right now. A rather humiliating feat defeat for old Burt Bielema, as I like to call him. USC 48, Arkansas 22. Yeah. 48 points with South Carolina. They, they seem to figure things out post Debo Samuel, and Arkansas doesn't play defense unless they're playing against us. Yeah, shocker. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts, and right now my thoughts go no win October and then very few wins November as a Gator fan. Very real scenario. We lose to A&M, we lose to Georgia, we lose South Carolina. Then what happens, Alan? How do you feel then? I don't know, but we might face that scenario. South Carolina is better than teams we've lost to, in my opinion, personally. Uh, so, you know, look out for that. Yeah, that game looks kind of scary. Although Arkansas is a giant dumpster fire, so I don't know if you want to read too much into that. And then Bama, 27, Texas A&M, 19. A fairly close game, maybe not as close as the score would indicate. Bama's always seemed to be in control of this game. We're about to talk a lot more about this game. Let's jump in and talk about Texas A&M and give you the full rundown on them. We are joined now by Dave South, the excellent play-by-play guy for the Texas A&M Aggies. Dave, thanks for being on today. Well, thanks a lot, guys, for having me on. Dave, what are the feelings around the program after what was a really good Alabama game? Well, I think um, the coach, I mean, he doesn't never happy about a loss, but I will say that I thought the fans pretty satisfied in that we were a decided underdog in that game. I think it went up to about 26 or 27 points on the spread and you end up playing them uh, a darn good game uh, only to come up short and not win it. So that aspect of it wasn't good with the coach. Um, but, um, you know, everybody I talked to, I just left my Lions club uh, meeting and everybody I talked to there was thrilled with the way that we played and hung in tough against a very experienced and a very good Alabama team. I talked to a fellow that said over the last five or six years, and he's a neutral, uh, has no affiliation either with A&M or with Alabama or any other school, matter of fact, in the SEC. And in his opinion, this is the best Alabama team that he has seen in those 20 games that he's had a chance to view. So that says a whole lot right there. And I not value this man's opinion because he covers a lot of college football. But um, I think 
pretty well satisfied as far as the fans are concerned. Coach is never happy about losing a game. Um, and they'll just go right back out on the field today and get ready for a good Florida team. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the team this season? Would you say that they're meeting expectations, exceeding them, not living up to them? You know, that's a hard thing to say because I don't know what people expected out of this team. Um, we did have a two-man quarterback race, um, and that race was won with the uh, naming of Nick Starkle as the starting quarterback against UCLA and Kellen Mond coming in second. Starkle had the advantage on Kellen Mond in that Starkle graduated from high school to a year and a half ago. So he had been here for a, a spring workout an entire season in 2016. And then uh, coming into uh, the spring workout of, of 17 and the fall workouts of 17, he had more uh, more experience. And I think most people expected him to be named quarterback, and he was, uh, and was doing well. And then somebody rolled up on him. Uh, one of the UCLA players fell on the back of his leg and ended up breaking his foot. And so then he's out of the game, and he's out apparently for the rest of the year, and that through Kellen Mond, who is a true freshman, but did come in last January, graduating from the IMG Academy there in Florida. Uh, threw him in as the starting quarterback. And I think he has continued to get better each game. I thought he played well against Alabama. I thought he did well, matter of fact, after the initial shock of getting in against UCLA. And, of course, the defense uh, kind of broke down there late in that game. We ended up losing that after having a, a big lead, which was a major disappointment. But I think Kellen is uh, probably the key to what we're doing right now. Uh, and he's got uh, some great running backs. We've got four that we've identified that have the potential to break a play anytime they're out there. Um, uh, for the most part, uh, we've been inserting – it's been like a puzzle as far as the offensive line is concerned. We probably played eight or nine guys in the offensive line trying to find some sort of a combination there that will work for us. And uh, they continue to, to hunt and, and search that out. And I'm not sure that Jim Turner, who's our offensive line coach, would say that he's found the five he likes to this point. And here we are, what's the six games deep into the season. Um, but I, I think it's a team that has gotten better every game. I think another key to this this team and, and, and Kevin Sumlin is the fact that he is playing more people each game than he has done in his first five years. Everybody is getting experience. He made the comment on the radio show I think week before last. He said, we didn't bring them in here to let them stand beside me on the sideline. And so they know that they need to have their helmet in hand and be ready to go at the drop of a hat. There are a lot of people getting a lot of snaps. And I think that in the Alabama game, with the, we kept throwing fresh bodies at them. And I felt, and so did Dave Elmendorf, who does the color on our broadcast, who's a former professional player and an All-American here at A&M, we felt that uh, Alabama in that fourth quarter was getting gassed. Uh, they were making a lot of substitutions, and we still had fresh bodies in there. So uh, if you're going to deal with A&M, you're going to have to deal with the fact that we play a lot of people, and all of these people are, are gaining experience each time out, and they're all good athletes. They're still young, but they're learning so Sumlin in an interesting position through multiple periods of this season, it's almost like its own soap opera. He enters the Arkansas game and what some people thought was a sort of coach for your job game and then comes out of this Bama game thinking maybe different. What's the pressure like on Sumlin right now? And what are the thoughts on his future, his immediate future this this year? Mm, well, I mean, I don't know. You know, uh, I don't really get into that. I will tell you that uh, when I when I'm with him, I don't sense that he feels any pressure whatsoever. 
uh, he's as loose right now as I've, as I've seen him in the, in the, now this is the sixth season that, uh, that I've worked with Kevin. I knew Kevin when he was here as an assistant, uh, on the, uh, the team for, um, for, for RC. Um, and I don't sense there's any pressure on him at all. Uh, I think that uh, he's coaching the, the football team and, um, has no idea or no eye whatsoever on anything past the next game. So I appreciate that about him. Uh, and if there's any pressure on him, I don't sense it. And that may be the only pressure that uh, is being talked about is, is being talked about by the media. And I don't think they have any idea about how uh, the the athletic director who would make a decision on the coach, how he feels about what's going on. So Texas A&M and Florida are, aren't two programs that have very much experience with one another. Let me ask, what is the perception of UF out there in Texas? Well, I mean, I don't know uh, how the fans, what kind of perception they would have on Florida other than what they perhaps have read or what they've seen on television, um, because we have only the one game since we've joined the, the SEC, which was our first game back in the 2012 season, our first year in the SEC. Prior to that, I guess it was a bowl game. And then I think prior to that, it goes way back to uh, a game full of about 1960 or something. But Here's what I would say. The one time that we had played Florida would go back to 2012. The Aggies were to have played a game before we played Florida to open SEC play. Our game against Louisiana Tech was canceled because of a hurricane, which, by the way, never hit that area. We could have played, but we didn't. Florida had played Troy, so Florida had a game under their belt. We had an opening game and our first game was against Florida, and it was here at Kyle Field, which was to an advantage for us. Now, what we had at quarterback that day was our first opportunity to see in a game situation Johnny Manziel. And I don't believe that, that, um, that the coaching staff had a, an understanding going in there because our quarterbacks aren't live in practice. And so this was the first time that Manziel was going to be seen in a live situation. And they were limiting his running. But when he did run in that game, uh, he was off to the races. And so before we played our second game, they went back and they revamped the offense, and they told Manziel, if you see an opening, you take off, which he did, and he did the rest of the year. But now Florida had played Troy. They had the game under their belt. The only thing I would say is R.C. Slocum used to say, you know a heck of a lot more about your team after a game going into game two than you did the first game of the year. Um, and so I thought the advantage that day, simply because Florida had the game and we didn't have one, definitely uh, would lay with the uh, with the Gators. Let's g- give us two key players on each side of the ball, and then their numbers for those of us that uh, won't recognize them just by their last name. Well, Kellen Mond, our quarterback, has done an outstanding job. Um, he's already, I think, over a thousand yards. I haven't seen the updated stats as of the time that we're talking. But he's over a thousand yards passing, and I think he's growing stronger each time out. That would be a key for us there, and I think the, the a key for us on the other side probably is Tyrell Dotson. I get, I give you three. Tyrell Dotson is a linebacker, um, had 16 tackles this past week. You got Armani Watts in the secondary, and you have Otara Alaka. All three of those guys are playmakers, and they're all, especially Alaka and Watts, they are leaders on the team. Uh, they will hit you. Um, and uh, they're, they're ball hawks. Uh, I think they're, they're as good a defensive players as I've seen in my some 32 years of calling Texas a and football. But those are the three guys on defense. Um, and then I would also have to point out Christian Kirk because 
they're doing everything they can to keep the ball away from Christian Kirk. Um, but so far, we've not identified a second really good receiver, even though uh, the young man named Osman that, that, that uh, is starting to, to pick up some numbers. But they're double-teaming Kirk, and despite that, he still leads the team in receptions. And they're doing everything they can on punts and kickoffs to keep the ball away from it. He broke one earlier this year against Arkansas for 100 yards on a kickoff return. So those are guys that uh, they, get, they get a lot of notice as far as uh, the opponents are concerned uh, with both the offense and the defense. So every person I've met who's graduated from Texas A&M has been just absolutely crazy about Aggie football. What's your favorite part about being in that culture? I like the traditions of Texas A&M. Um, you know, it's at uh, one time was an all-male military school um, and uh, had an enrollment of about 7,000. When I first arrived at, uh, at A&M back in 85, we had an enrollment of about 25,000. This year, we're over 60,000, about 62 or 63,000. And I've been told that in the next few years, we're going to be around 80,000. Um, it has conservative values, so I like that. Uh, and we have a lot of tradition here. We have the tradition of the 12th man. We have my favorite tradition, is, and it's kind of a lengthy story to tell you what it's called. It's called Aggie Muster, uh, and it's on the 21st of April every year. I like that tradition. Uh, we're, we're very prideful about the fact that we call it the friendliest campus in the country because by and large, you say howdy to somebody, and they say howdy back. Uh, but it's, it's a good student body. Um, and they really, and you're right, they really do support uh, Texas A&M football. We were 103,000 at the game this past Saturday. Uh, we sell more student tickets than any university in the country. I think this year we topped 37,000 student tickets. They even buy all what they call an all-sports pass. And you're right, they do really get out. They do support uh, the football team. I know you probably can't make a prediction, but uh, if Texas A&M wins this game, what do you think the game looks like? I think it'd be a low-scoring game, uh, personally, but we we'll just have to wait and see. Um, it makes us to see how we respond from the way that I hope there's not a big drop-off because um, I'm anxious to see the response that we get back after uh, the loss against Alabama. That was a very – I don't – I have not seen any kind of an injury report and how – I don't think anybody's out, but kind of bruised up after a game like that. Um, but I would, I would anticipate a low-scoring game. Um, we'll just have to wait and see how that unfolds. He is Dave South, the voice of the Aggies. Dave, we welcome you to Gainesville this weekend. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us this week on the podcast. We appreciated having you. Thank you very much for having me on, guys. God bless. All right, let's get a little primer on AM. First of all, there's a three-point spread on this game favoring Florida, at least when we record. Now, last week with LSU, it swung all the way to LSU favored by a point and a half. So keep an eye out on that for this week as well. The defensive coordinator is the very well-respected John Chavis, who's been there for two years now, I believe, came over from LSU, a lot of success. And the offensive coordinator, another guy with a ton of experience, Noel Mazzoni, longtime offensive coordinator. So a lot of coaching firepower there on the A&M sidelines. James, you've looked at the tape of A&M. Tell me what you learned. First, I want to say that this team has gotten better each and every week. They took a gut punch when they lost their starting quarterback, who you heard Dave South mention, and it took them a while to reorient. And I think a lot of us, like me, even like you, maybe we're talking about AM, oh, it's dumpster fire, they're kind of going down. It's the coaching game where they had to win that one against Brett Bielema. But 
what they put on film against Alabama is is solid. That was what stuck out the most. This was a solid football team on film. They fumbled the ball two times in that game and lost them. Uh, and that changed the game significantly. They were moving the ball against Alabama with some regularity. They were stopping Alabama frequently. Good, good stuff was put on film in that game. Reasons for me as a Florida fan to be concerned. On the defensive side, John Chavis, who you mentioned, is a defensive legend in the SEC, 23 straight years being a coordinator here, formerly from LSU, obviously has a lot of familiarity with stopping Alabama. He had done it in most of those slobber knocker games you thought of against Saban. That was John Chavis' defense, so keep that in mind. Uh, they probably underperformed, I think, Chavis' expectations, but this is year three for him, and so I think you're seeing them get better. He likes to run a 4-3 defense, much like we do. He's very, very aggressive I fully plan on expecting him to bring a safety into the box and play tons of man press against us. Uh, think of what Michigan did to us. I think they will be very similar. Uh, that's a problem, in my opinion, for us. This is the kind of defensive coordinator this Florida team does not want to go against, and that's who we're going against. On the offensive side of the ball, it's really someone's offense. They always have an offensive coordinator, but they run the air raid offense, which, of course, we all know how much I like that one. Uh, they do have a freshman running out of it, but that's not preventing them from running a lot of five wide sets. They're going to spread you out. They're going to run a lot of zone read. Most of their runs are going to be zone read based runs. It's almost entirely out of shotgun. Uh, they have a lot of excellent route combos. They had a lot of receivers wanting wide open against Alabama. They did not hit them primarily due to Alabama's pressure and to the fact that they just have a true freshman. That's not quite great at making those reads yet, but they will run some wonderful, wonderful route combos. They love to attack the flats with their running backs. So the running backs will chip block. They'll take a zone read. They'll also flare out, which puts a lot of pressure on our linebackers to cover that. Uh, this looks like a very tricky matchup for us in the secondary. Uh, we've excelled in previous years against this. This year, it's going to be tough. I think A&M presents a tough challenge for us, uh, especially with some of the stuff they do on offense. So we will have our hands full as a coaching staff and as players this week, sort of sorting through what A&M brings. But Mainly the takeaway here is they really popped to me on film. Of course, I couldn't evaluate the Michigan team because we hadn't didn't really have any tape on that current team. But from what I've watched thus far this year, they look the best on film from what I've seen. Uh, and that's the progression that they've gone through. So that's probably something to think about this week as we head into this game. Alan, offensively, the Gators were challenged. We've talked a lot about things we could do. A narrative that's maybe rearing its head now is Malik Zaire. Hey, what about this guy? Should we just switch to like a running-based offense and try to steal some games here? A la Georgia Tech or vis-a-vis -vis Virginia Tech of old under Frank Beamer? What are your thoughts on that? It's tempting, honestly. With the way that we're constructing this offense, where we're such a running heavy attack, why not put a guy back there who's going to facilitate that by running the ball himself and you know, we're not a team that runs a lot of, you know, I guess zone read stuff, although you do see us employ the Wildcat with Kadarius Tony. Overall, I, I do not want to do that. It is intriguing if we're only going to score 16 points in a game against the suspect LSU defense. But no, I think that would be regressive. I think that would be putting a halt on any momentum this offense might be gaining. I don't want to see us do that. What about you? Yeah, I echo your thoughts entirely there. That's against everything I want as a as a thinker, as a strategist. You know, my goal is let's maximize our ceiling. Let's play the game beautifully. Let's top out our production. Uh, let's suffer through 
lumps if we have to, to get to a better tomorrow. Uh, let's not focus on the short term at the cost of the long term. And to me, that decision would indicate all of those things. I would not like it. I would not want to watch it. I don't think it's wise. I would rather lose every game this year if you could tell me we're actually going to get experience and improve from it than do that. I think the problem all of us are facing right now is you have to really ask yourself if anything we're doing this season on offense is going to lead to a better offense next season. It's a fair question. Not sure the answer to that one yet. All right. Another thing that we have to take into account here, the injury list for the Gators is a little longer than it normally is. Nick Washington, our safety, probably out. Brett Heggie, the emerging offensive lineman, doubtful with concussion. Cleveland, Tyree, Seemingly out again with his ankle. Chauncey uh, Gardner, Jeremiah Moon, Kadarius Tony, all dinged up, not practicing, at least on Monday and Tuesday. That's disconcerting to say the least. Um, some very important guys there. Now, Jim McElwain is not known for, you know, I'd say, I don't know if I should say honesty, but transparency in his injury reports. And so some of these guys he says might not play, sometimes do and vice versa. So I don't know. Hopefully we can have Chauncey Gardner back there. Missing both of our safeties, even if they're not playing well, puts a ton of strain on that back end, potentially playing four true freshmen back there. And then obviously Kadarius Tony has been one of our best players overall. So not having him in the game would be a big blow. And he was in and out of the lineup on Saturday. looked really dinged up. So um, that'd be a real shame not to have him in in the game facilitating what is a struggling offense. Okay, James, let's move to our keys to victory. What are those for you? We have to control Mond from running the football. So he's a very mobile quarterback. And as a freshman, he's probably not going to hang in the pocket long enough to make a ton of reads. Alabama bought a lot of pressure against him as the game went on. And although it was successful in doses, uh, he hurt them with his legs. And we now saw that on film. Uh, We picked up something on that. I think we need to be very cognizant of that. Randy Shannon, historically, especially at Miami, is very good against running quarterbacks. A lot of his defense is meant to neutralize that. But that's going to have to happen. We can't allow Mond to steal third down conversions, third and seven, third and eight, third and nine with his legs. And so I think that's one key. Of course, there's obvious keys about limiting their passing, limiting their big plays. But I think that key, when you're watching, watch how often he's able to scramble first downs. A&M's going to need him to do that, I think, to be able to win this game. On the offensive side of the ball, how do we handle what's going to be a game plan that resembles Michigan? Heavy, aggressive pressure. So far, under McIlwain's tenure, we've handled it extremely poorly. Do we do anything differently this week to curb that? And the way you would know if we did is if we completed big passing plays down the field. If you see vertical passing plays down the field being completed, that's going to be successful. That contributes to us winning. If you do not see that, then that's going to be a problem. So the keys to victory, I think, can be summed up in those two uh, those two facets for me. Yeah, I would agree on stopping Kellen Mond. He is really impressive when he's running the ball. Not so impressive throwing the ball. He's got a decent arm, but not very accurate. He's a guy who's pressed into service earlier than they wanted him to be. And now we've had some struggles with running quarterbacks that was under the previous administration on defense. Like you said, Randy Shannon is the simplicity on defense should help in containing a running quarterback. 
where I'm concerned is covering those running backs out in the flat, like you mentioned. Our linebackers have frequently looked lost in coverage. LSU made some nice plays attacking our linebackers. That'll be a key. AM has some excellent running backs. Do they gash us for some long runs as well? We've gotten creased a few times by Michigan, by Tennessee. If our safeties don't fill the box and you know, put a stop to some of those big plays, could be a long day for us. Offensively, um, can we give Felipe Franks enough time to make the throws down the field? Um, we seem to be on the verge of that. There's often moments where he's throwing with a clean pocket, and then there's often times where someone's coming through completely unblocked and blowing up a play. If we continue to do that, it's going to be a long day because they will bring pressure, I believe, like you said. But I think we can hit the some big plays down the field. So those would be my keys to victory as well. Prediction time. This time you get to go first, Alan. What do you got? I feel sad about this, um, but I'm going to predict a Texas A&M win. It feels like they're moving in the right direction while we're kind of standing still. I don't think this is an unwinnable game by any means, but I'm going to take A&M 24, Gators 20. Wow. Apparently we are in lockstep, even though we are across the world from each other. So after watching the film, I was very disheartened. Uh, And to me, A&M is the better team, at least on film. Doesn't always translate to the next week, but... I think what you said is accurate, and I've got uh, I've got A and M twenty seven twenty, and I think this is going to be an interesting week. I think Alan, it's going to be an interesting month, and I want to ask you right now if we look at these teams around Florida as a bonus little teaser question: UCF, USF, Miami, Florida State, the Gators. Are we the worst team out of the major schools in Florida right now? That's an interesting question. USF's playing well. UCF is playing well. I, I think we could hold our own against them. Miami doesn't seem to be, you know, running away from anybody really. And Florida State's in some trouble right now. So even in our, you know, low state currently, I don't know that we're going to get run off the field by anybody. Maybe UCF or USF surprises me, but I'd still like to see us um, in one of those games before I would, you know, jump off a cliff. So hopefully both Alan and I are wrong this weekend and we come back on this very podcast on Monday and rave about some excellent showing on Saturday. But in the meantime, Alan, that would put the Gators at uh, three and three as we did yes. a pod, as we did a pod next week. Alan, is there anything that we missed on this podcast that should be discussed right now? Something we said while we were pausing um, earlier we should have won this game and now it wouldn't have felt pretty and it would have been frustrating, but the Gators should definitely have won this game. I think we'd be feeling a lot different about this A&M game with an extra field goal. Um, just a lot more room to breathe. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on this team. I'm interested to see how they're going to respond. Yeah. It's funny how like a, another win at the last second would have changed coming into this game and coming out of this game and how we felt, even though it would have been the same frustrations, it wouldn't have changed the underlying style frustrations you would have had this sort of, well, we keep winning close games and maybe we'll figure it out. We bought ourselves more time. But that narrative is changing now to, I think, like the doomsday narrative. And so this Saturday is a crucial point, I think, in McIlwain's career. And both of us are indicating we don't necessarily have the confidence, given the circumstances, uh, that we will see. All right. Last but not least, the national games 
this weekend. Not a terribly exciting slate. Let's start with South Carolina at Tennessee. Tennessee favored by two and a half. Well, I guess we'll find out how for real South Carolina is. This is a big game for them. I don't know. I'm tempted to still take Tennessee. I don't know that South Carolina has really impressed me on the road yet. So I'll take the Vols here. I'm going to take South Carolina. I think they figured out life after losing Debo Samuel. And obviously, whenever you can bet against Butch Jones, do it. Texas Tech on the road against West Virginia. My favorite player in all of college football, no surprise, Will Greer. Favored by three and a half over Texas Tech. Who do you got there? Texas Tech is interesting to me this year. Seems like they're playing a little more defense. Huge road game for them. Again, we'll find out a little bit if they're for real. I'll take the road team this time. I'll take Texas Tech in the points. I like West Virginia here. I think they've become like a gateway team. They're they're very solid, but have run into a Virginia Tech team that's just a little bit more talented than them and then run into a TCU team that seems to be good on the road. But if you can beat West Virginia, I think you can feel pretty good about where your football team is. You're at least in the upper half. Uh, TCU, that same TCU team, only favored by four and a half against the same Kansas State team that lost to Vanderbilt. This feels really tricky here. I don't know. Feels like TCU should handle K State, but on the road, I don't know. TCU, I'll, I'll go with TCU here. Yeah, a lot of familiarity here. TCU plays a tough game against West Virginia, coming off an emotional high. This will be a high game for Kansas State. But if TCU's for real, which I said if they beat West Virginia last week, I consider them as as being somewhat for real. I'm going to stay with TCU in this one. Then Florida State, a touchdown favorite at Duke. Man, I really want to take Duke here in the points. I don't know if it's just me being gleeful about seeing FSU lose again. They're one and three. I don't know that they're going to go one and four. That feels apocalyptic. And Duke is a team that, like, we talk about them being frisky, but I don't know if Duke has it this year. They didn't show up well against Miami, so I'm going to have to take FSU here. Yeah, Florida State's lost to Miami, which is ranked. They've lost to Alabama which is number one, and they've lost to NC State, who's sort of become the team people thought they'd be. I'm still not so sure that that Florida State's as bad as a lot of people think they are, and this, I think, is the game. And Wake Forest also testy, by the way. They, they snuck that one out there, but this is the game I think they'll prove it in. I think Florida State wins this game. I think Duke is good, and I'm not sure they cover, but I think Florida State's going to keep getting better, and I'm going to keep saying that even though I hate Florida State, so maybe I'm like reverse jinxing them. Who knows? Auburn... Minus six and a half against LSU. This feels like stealing. I don't know. This line feels crazy to me. It's it's at 3.30, so it's not at night in Death Valley. I don't see any reason to take LSU in this game. Yeah, I feel like Floyd Mayweather wearing the robber bandit mask walking into the arena because I'm about to steal everyone's money as I beat Conor McGregor. Like, I feel like putting a significant bet on this right now. Something feels really wrong about that, given what I've seen on tape and film. I'll be really interested to see where that line ends up on Saturday because that seems wrong, but I'm taking Auburn to cover that one for sure. Oklahoma, just monumental meltdown. 30-point favorites against Iowa State. And yes, Iowa State has been getting better. And yes, people are undervaluing them. And yes, all those things are true. But that, that was a bad result for Lincoln Riley. Now he has to go face Texas, Tom Herman's Texas team. They're great as underdogs. Who do you like here? Yeah, what kind of mental state is Oklahoma in right now? Maybe feeling their whole season go down the drains. 
this Red River River rivalry, say that five times fast, I can't, obviously, is always weird. Texas wins this game when they shouldn't. Charlie Strong won this a couple years ago with a pretty bad Texas team. So I'm definitely taking Texas in the points here. Oh, I don't know what to do anymore. Oklahoma was a playoff team for me, and they looked very much the part, minus you know, a weird result against Baylor, no big deal. They're kind of coasting, and then that loss. That shakes everything up. I it I don't know. I have no idea right now what's going on in in Norman, Oklahoma. And like you said, this game is crazy. Even when one team is way better than the other one, uh, Tom Herman's ability to keep games close and make things interesting. It, it feels like Oklahoma should be more than a touchdown better than them. But I love love Texas's freshman quarterback. I mean, that guy is incredibly fun to watch. So based solely upon that, I'm gonna take Texas here. With the points, I think Oklahoma wins this game. It would not surprise me if Texas wins, but regardless, it should be a really fun game to watch. Two fun teams, I think. One in Oklahoma on offense, and, and one in emerging offense in Texas. So there you have it. Thanks again for joining us for yet another mega sode. By the way, Alan and I are always wondering if these episodes are too long. So if you've got feedback and you want to tell us, feel free to tweet at us, send us a Facebook message, post it on Patreon. We'd love to get your thoughts. Because we do this show for your enjoyment. And if it's way too long, tell us and we'll cut stuff out. And if you love it the way it is, tell us so it keeps us going so we're not sitting here debating off air whether or not we should shorten these episodes. Uh, We certainly look forward to being back with you next weekend. We'll make sense of whatever happens. Win, lose, tie. Good decisions, bad decisions. We'll clear it up for you. We'll give you the insights based upon how we saw it. And uh, hopefully we'll make you a smarter football fan. Thanks as always for joining us. Look forward to seeing you next week. Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.